Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. You just don't like headphones? Uh, if I don't need them, I don't. I if I I don't need to hear my voice. Okay, we can go whenever you want. Just hit record. Yeah. Check one two. I I was talking. Do you know Miroslav Volf? Uh, do you know yes, the name? I know that is the yeah, name. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he's got a nice accent going, and my headphones just like weren't working. Like I couldn't hear anything trying to interview him, and so. I was, like the interview was already going because I was just doing it through Skype and like he's way smarter than me and I couldn't hear like but half of what he was saying it made a really bad interview how do you are you sure I I'm, I listened to it back and I was like that's not that's not good so I knew that yeah <laughs> so that's why I think it's important to be able to hear <laughs> but you can hear because we're right in front of each other right now yes okay um okay. so let's introduce this welcome everyone to the podcast Today we're in the um, the back house. Is that yes. what we call this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, of Rob Bell, Rob and Chris and Bell's home. Yes, and uh, we are playing for an audience of one today. Our friend Paul Nevison from a land down under, where the women glow and the men plunder. Thunder, thunder, plunder. Yeah, Paul. He's... Can't you hear? Can't you hear? The thank, thunder. Thank you. You were just down under too, weren't you? I was. How was that? It was incredible. Where Where were well, you? Unbelievable people. Really. Yeah, I did a night in Sydney and a night in Melbourne, and then I'm going to go back this summer and do a little more extensive tour. Is that with the this book, the tour? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, we'll go around. You lived in Sydney. I did, and then I moved to Brisbane, and then you didn't come. Didn't come to Brisbane? Yeah. I'm going to go to Brisbane next. <gasps> dreams. Dreams. Fixing problems. Dreams. <laughs> One dude. minute into your podcast. And, uh... I'm so excited about that. We just fixed a problem. Did, so were you really just surfing down there, or did you really like do like talks and stuff? Or is it? Just... Uh, no, I did two nights. I did a night in Sydney, and did a night in Melbourne. Did you decide I want a trip to surf in Australia, or did you book these events and say I'm going to surf after these events are already booked? Uh, no, it was about the work. It was about doing two nights. It was about d- doing. I did uh, two hour, uh, two hours in each city. Was it like the two hour event? Um, yeah, yeah, that's why I went. Okay, I listened to your podcast with Elizabeth Gilbert, and she had a glowing review of your event, so that was awesome. I didn't really know her work before. Like, I knew of Eat, Pray, Love, but I didn't really ever listen to anything she did until you started being friends with her and podcasting, and I feel like if I saw her, I'd probably give her a hug. It's ast- She's astonishing, isn't she? Yeah. Would it's it be... Just, it's just unbelievable that, that that a person can have that sort of wisdom and insight and energy and love and it's incredible would would the hug kind of freak her out a little bit no she'd probably hug you first okay good so yeah she's how did you guys get to like be friends uh we were both on tour with oprah oh that's right so we went to atlanta for the opening weekend of the oprah tour and um we had the same driver, so we met in the lobby of the Ritz in Atlanta, being driven to the rehearsal at the arena. Um, so I met her like on the couches in the lobby, like, "Oh, hey!" And then we sort of entered into this 
Oprah touring world together. And now so you guys are us. like, um, I don't say best friends, but you're pretty close. <laughs> top, top. She's probably like a favorite in your phone. I would assume <laughs> you don't have to answer that question, but that's worked out really well. And that's great. Thank you, Oprah, for bringing you guys together. <laughs> there, were, there actually was a, on tour, people thought well, there was a question about whether we were brother and sister. Um, oh, really? Yeah. In a couple of cities, that was like a, like a, a prevailing question was, wait, wait, wait. Cause we were doing these thing events, Q and A's together. Yeah. And we were like, wow, this really works. So actually we're doing an event Memorial day together at a, at a uh, yoga studio. Yeah. At, at Wanderlust Hollywood. And it's literally because we just like doing what we do together. So we were like, let's just do a whole day. Let's just do it. <laughs> let's make it work. Will there actually be yoga involved? No, no. We'll be breathing. Um, that's but, kind a great, of but Wanderlust has this really great space. It's a really great space. And so when I was thinking of, I needed to find a space around here, uh, that one came to mind right away. So you went to the yoga place. Yeah. That's exciting. I started doing yoga recently. Excellent. Can you tell? <laughs> but I, I but I, but I've never, I just didn't know if you could tell cause, cause you go to yoga place, but I've never thought of, Hey, let's have a, an event at the yoga place I go to. I actually spoke at an event there. So I'd never been to yoga there. I okay. just been there for an event. It was like, Whoa, this space could work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, good, good. Okay. So <laughs> So let's, the book, How to Be Here. Yes. Okay. So uh, I enjoyed the book. I read it. And um, it seemed like it was kind of a creativity-centered like book. So we're talking creativity, how to like channel that. It had like a Stephen Pressfield feel to it, like the, mm. the War of Art, which I love that book. I, so yeah, that is so a compliment in, in my world. And so some might hear that and go, okay, he's kind of like going the creative route, less spirituality. But I would assume if you were asked that question, you would say it's really a continuation of your spirituality work when you talk about creativity. Absolutely. The root of all spirituality is the creative impulse. Okay. That's what spirit does is creates new possibilities, creates new awareness, mm -hmm. creates uh, a new tomorrow. And if you take the Jesus story seriously it always moves to flesh and blood. It always moves to the outworking. The word becomes flesh. That's the fundamental movement of the arc, the trajectory, the scriptures. Mm -hmm. uh, the point of the Eucharist is this bread and wine is holy because all bread and wine is holy. Yeah. So the idea somehow that things need to remain at some sort of abstract theological level is the antithesis of the Jesus movement, mm -hmm. which is always, what does this look like in flesh and blood? Can I tell you, I really appreciate how excited you were to say the word antithesis. You seem very <laughs> excited when you said, and it's such a good word, but you're okay. So the incarnation move, <laughs> the incarnation move, obviously that's behind it. You have a line in there about how to determine if the work is good. And you say, is it like moving the wor oh, world yeah. forward? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so if people can't see on this podcast, cause it's just audio and they can't, they don't know that you have a teleard Deschart, something right there, like a book. Deschart in? Yeah, I can't yeah, say yeah. his name. But you have a book that's titled From Telliard to Omega. And so the, like the Omega point, which we've discussed before in the podcast, is important to you. And so it seems like your understanding of creativity is like it's moving the world forward. It's pointing this thing towards that point. And so you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's Genesis 1. The Bible begins with a poem. And in this poem, these trees produce fruit. The fruit produces seeds. The seeds are planted, they're buried mm -hmm. in the earth, they're covered with soil, then they rise out of the earth. There's a burial mm -hmm. and then a rising mm -hmm. of these seeds to create new trees. 
So right away, the scriptures open with a creation that is inherently loaded. It's mm-hmm. moving. It's headed somewhere. Um, and so even you have this great Hebrew word shalom, this wholeness, health, peace, harmony. There's peace between people. There's mm-hmm. when we're comfortable in our own skin, our own sense of shalom. There's shalom with the soil. So we right now as a human species, we are we are out of whack. We don't have shalom with the earth. Mm-hmm. And we're damaging the earth to the point where our own survival on the planet is is in peril. Yes. Um, but these dimensions of shalom are the story. And you have all this energy you've been given, talent, skill, passion. Uh, what kind of world are you going to help make? One in which there's increasing levels of complexity in shalom or one that actually destroys the shalom that God intends for things. And that's like, a, that's fundamentally creative work. What you do with your life is creative work. You're creating your life. I like it. <laughs> I'm going to do, I, I love it. I think that's great. I think we should do that. Excellent. How come like religion doesn't always seem like it's like tapping into, or, or some people's experience of religion doesn't seem to be like tapping into that sort of like creative impulse. Like in your book, you have a line about, uh, you know, Jesus was compelling, but religion, eh, that wasn't the exact wording. Oh but. yeah. Yeah. No. When I was, when I was growing up, I, I, I found Jesus utterly compelling. I believed I found, uh, his insistence that there was a whole nother way of understanding reality mm-hmm. because I growing up, there was always a ranking and a hierarchy. There was always somebody who was cool. There's always people smarter. There's always better athletes. There's always people more popular. And he kept insisting there are other ways to understand the world than the hierarchy that you've been handed. Um, and that whenever there was a system that pushed somebody to the edges, he moves to the edges in solidarity with those who've been kicked to the edges. Whenever there's somebody who no one can hear their cry, he hears their cry. When he's asked a question, he responds with a question, which yeah. I love. Almost like saying, you need to own this. Mm-hmm. What do you think? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Um, so from a young age, I found Jesus utterly compelling. I didn't understand that why the movement that had built up around him didn't seem to reflect him. Uh, yeah. It seemed to be about a bunch of other things. And uh, in that section of the book, I'm simply talking about how often the person you've become, your calling, your destiny, your path, Oftentimes you can see the seeds way back, Hmm. way back earlier in your story. How do you think people can be aware of like those seeds? Is it something you have to wait a long time to see, oh, this is going to have a lasting impact on me? I think, uh, I think if you, uh, Frederick Wigner talks about listening to your life. Um, When were moments when you felt most at peace with yourself and the world around you? When were you engaged in things that you thought, I could do this forever? Or the flip side in the book, I talk about anger. What is it that angers you? Like, what is it that when you see it, something within you thinks, somebody should do something about that? Well, maybe you're the someone. Um, so sometimes we stumble into the to why we're here out of anger, just this frustration and rage at the injustice of something. And your job is to fix that to stand up against that, uh, to, uh, a friend of mine started black lives matter. She was over here recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I interviewed her and she grew up on the receiving end of all sorts of injustice as the child of immigrants and had this sense like w- we need to make a better world. So her activism, her name is Opal to It comes out of her story. Mm-hmm. Um, so oftentimes I've discovered that somebody may have a sense of frustration, restlessness. My life isn't going anywhere. I wish I felt like, and then you just, 
start going, peeling back the layers of, of where they've been and what they've been a part of, anything make you angry? Anything bring you joy? Is there anything that you have a love for it, but somewhere along the way somebody told you, well, you know, you can't really make, you yeah. can't really have a career doing that. Um, I've never thought about having a career. That is just like the weirdest thing to me, like to think about like, oh, is your career going? Just for me at least, it, it never had anything to do with having a career. It was always this like curiosity. It was even always like this. College age Rob wasn't like, I need a career. I, just, I don't even, wouldn't have been no, I just would have blanked. I have no idea what that means. I have no idea. It wasn't until the very end of college I preached a sermon and I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do. This is what you're going to do. <laughs> so just before you're just kind of floating along. I was in a band, so I so the band, that was what I cared about. Mm. It was like we're, we thought we were going to be the next REM, which dates us, dates me right there to say I'm, that. I'm sorry I didn't. I'm, I did. I, I was driven, like, let's do music. But then, you know, everybody had to get jobs and yeah. college was over and it sort of fell apart like college bands do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in the book, you say that, like, you had a, an album that you recently put out and it wasn't necessarily received. Oh, I didn't even put it out. Just <laughs> <laughs> it didn't really re- wasn't received in the way that you wanted. So I'm sorry about that. I would have at least given you a courtesy. Hey, that's nice. Oh, that's. Oh, yeah. In the in the book, I tell about uh, I've always I'm always making some sort of noise. Um. As we sit in this room, there is... Oh, yeah, there's drums and guitars and... Uh, oh, yeah, so I've recorded numerous stuff over the years. Um, in the book, I tell about like playing it for people and friends and then just being like, so what about that queso dip you made? <laughs> just nobody cares. No one cared about it. And, that, and then my point was simply, some things you do because it brings you joy. Mm-hmm. That's not... That's just why you do it. You just do it because you want to do it. And if I tried to make music for, for like... For my work, I'd be bored. And, I'd be bored in a heartbeat. You, and it wouldn't even. It wouldn't be good. And nobody. Nobody cares anyway. So it's like, you know. But yeah. Okay. So, Can we go back to the anger thing? Yes. So people follow their joy. We get that. Like follow your passion. Yeah. I think we can all get behind that. Some of us have been told if you're angry about something, well, you shouldn't be angry, and you need to like forgive or move on. And we haven't been given permission to listen to our anger and to become friends with our anger. How can we start doing that? Well, sometimes anger is simply the inhibiting of your ego. You wanted something, you didn't get it, mm-hmm. and you're angry. Uh, so sometimes the e- it's simply a barrier to what you want. And it is not connected to any larger movement in the world other than you and your own desire. There are moments when your anger is actually a reflection of a larger injustice and wrong in the world. Hmm. And this is way beyond just your ego. Like, that person doesn't like me. Now I'm pissed off. Get over it. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, the world's a little bit bigger than whether or not people like you. Um, But then there is people are being bought and sold Mm -hmm. in human trafficking. And that is a degradation and a violation of every person who's bought and sold but at some level that is an injustice done to all of us yeah and so there is a there is a there is a divine element to that anger with that this anger is way bigger than just me um and uh, oftentimes it has a systemic dimension to it but um so that's one way that sort of helps me is is am i just angry because something didn't go the way i wanted it to or is there some larger 
injustice that this is a reflection of. And in that case, let's go. And that's let's how you do something. And, and so um, that's what you listen to, to, um, yeah. Uh, okay. What is the, so, so you're at a, you're at a, you're at a game and there's a guy yelling at the ref and he's way too overheated. I know the guy. And you intuitively know this guy was, is not angry with the ref. He was angry long before he got here. He's frustrated about how his life has gone. He's frustrated about an overbearing boss that's pushing him around. He's frustrated because he doesn't have the tools to communicate to his wife. He's frustrated because he wants a connection with his kids, but he just keeps telling them what to do, and the kids just keep resisting him all the more. Like, he's frustrated all across the board. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what you're seeing right now in politics, is you're seeing, um, particularly on the Republican side, politicians literally taking all of that frustration and catalyzing it for particular purposes. Um, so a lot of people have a latent, like a bucket of energy. That's just an, a base level frustration with their life. So when we talk about being a healthy whole person, you work through that stuff. You shine the light in there. You figure out what that is. You do the work. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are larger, healthy, uh, the divine sort of anger. Mm -hmm. That's something far bigger than all the work you haven't done. Um, it oh. is about a world that is out of whack, that needs people to step up and resist and march and roll their sleeves up and do that kind of work. Okay, so what if I'm listening, and this is me hypothetically, because I have done the work, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know why you laughed at that. That was a serious statement. But what if I'm listening to this and I'm going, okay, I've got this anger, and it's, and it's not really like, hey, there's global injustices, but I'm just like angry at my dad because I haven't worked through my junk with him. And so now I'm yelling at my the, the referee for my daughter's soccer game. Okay. Okay. So what do I do to do the work on that? Like, where do I even start dealing with that issue? Well, we're all handed a whole pile of things from our family of origin. And the beautiful thing is there are lots and lots of people who are trained in family systems. Mm -hmm. There are people who are like experts in father issues. Mm -hmm. There are people, there are therapists, counselors, spiritual directors, guides, pastors, priests, rabbis, psychoanalysts, psychiatrists. Like there is a world of people who probably in two minutes with you could start helping make sense of some of this stuff. And again, by you, it was a general <laughs> hypothetical you. So, I love my dad. Um, Thanks, Larry. What I think is really, which is new news to lots of people and can, can literally change your life in very tangible, measurable sorts of ways, is you have something that you're all bound up in. Mm -hmm. You can actually go get help. And there are people who, I mean, I have gone to guides, spiritual directors, um, I had one therapist particularly I went to for years. I would bring in the biggest hairball of doubt, fear, worry, anger, anxiety, questions, frustrations, tension. And he would just, okay, tell me about that. Okay, tell me about that. Well, actually, uh, here's a way to think about it. And it would just, I would walk out of there like, oh my word, we're going to be fine. That's good. <laughs> and... So that's what I would say is I would say, tackle it, work on it, deal with it, go see somebody. All it can do is help and make your life better. Hmm. That's good. So all I can do is to help make it better. I like that. And so one of the things you talked about in the book is that the, uh, there's a creative act. You can do something creatively to make 
all things like a positive thing for you. Like there's this creative act oh, to see. Oh yeah. I'm try- I don't have the quote in front of me, so I'm just kind of making stuff up as I'm going. Hopefully eventually it's going to land. But this talking about like you can use things that don't go the way you want as a positive thing, which has always been an issue for me. Cause I wonder like, what is it about some people? They go through terrible situations and they just become more bitter and other people go through terrible situations and become better people. Right. And I wonder about myself, like certain situations I go through, I become, I grow and gain depth. Other times I become mm-hmm. petty because of it. Mm-hmm. As we're thinking about trying to process those things, it is a creative effort to do that. How, how can we see the difference? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Well, one of the things I talk about is, for many people, the world is a static, fixed, already established place. And so, spatially then, the way they see life is you go out into the world and try and find your place. Okay. Um, But in the book, I talk about how you create your life, that the universe is unfinished. And what you do is you take part in the ongoing creation of the world. It's a very Jewish idea. Um, The world is unfinished. So the Adam and Eve story, which is a poem about all of humanity, raises this fantastic question, what are these people going, what kind of world are they going to create? What are they going to do with this life they've been given? Which raises the question, because the poet is brilliant, what are we going to do? Like, what kind of life are you going to create? So for many people, creativity is, you know, painting and sculpture and songs, as opposed to creation, which is how you organize your life, where you live, how you spend your time, what you do each day is all fundamentally a creative act. And so we have more power to create our lives than we realize. And what's happened for many people is with more technology, more opportunities, more resources than ever in the modern world, it's extraordinary to me how many people have almost a passive disempowered, well, it's just how it is. I just got to go to work. I got to, well, you could live in a smaller house. And then you wouldn't need to make that so much money and you wouldn't have to work all the time. You could live somewhere else. You could quit that job. But then what would I do? You could do something else. Like you have more power to shape this thing. And the moment you start talking about how you have more power than you realize to create your life, the the next question, which is a great question, is yes, but what about cancer? What about the things that happened to you that you didn't create? They just happened to you. But what's interesting is all cancer foundations were generally founded by somebody who lost a loved one to cancer. And recovery groups are generally run by people Mm. who have been through addiction. So they, in the face of things they never would have picked, chose to create something out of even this. So this is why the most inspirational speakers, um, people be like, oh, this person came to our office and did this talk. It was unbelievable. They got... They lost a limb in a war. You know what I mean? It's always somebody who went through some horrible tragedy and loss who then chose to make something out of even that. Hmm. So the question becomes heartache, betrayal, divorce, bankruptcy, failure, losing your job, being fired, whatever it is. What are you going to make out of even this? Hmm. Um, And it becomes a question that can actually turn everything around. doesn't mean you don't grieve. doesn't mean you're not angry. doesn't mean you don't vent. doesn't mean you might need a period of just, I am really hacked off at sort of an existential level here. Um, but at some point, 
this question begins to emerge. What's going to come out of even this? What am I going to create out of even this? Because when you talk to people about who are doing really interesting work, I mean, I'm sure you had the same thing. You've interviewed all these people for your podcast. When you interview them and you ask them about how they got to where they are, how they're doing what they're doing, they always tell these stories. Well, everything fell apart. Things didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. I, the love of my life died. And out of that, I realized I had a choice. So I took another step. Um, I just discovered over the years that every time I would ask somebody who I admired or who I wanted a, a piece of what they have, like, I want to know how you do that or how did you get to that or how do you do that work? They'd always tell some story about tragedy, loss, suffering, betrayal, heartache. Hmm. That they, out of that, chose to create something. And, and that's how you can see it's as a gift. Okay, yeah, me... that might take a while. Some yeah. things are awful. The last thing on the earth is a, is a gift. And you, and certain things, certain pain, especially somebody who like struggles with chronic pain, uh, to me, nothing would be more insulting than to say, well, you know, you were given this gift to create something new in the world. Uh, oh, my, how insulting is that? Yeah. There is within day after day of chronic pain, uh, in the silence of that kind of suffering somewhere in there is a question is there somebody else with chronic pain who maybe you could tell them your story and walk with them because you actually know what they're going through yeah and that itself that that becomes itself a, a creative act yeah uh my mom's had uh chronic pain for um i mean since i was a kid oh. and so she's pretty much bed, been bedridden for about a decade now mm. and uh yeah, I mean, it, it would be insulting to say that. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's to the family and everyone involved. Um, but somehow there's a, a winnowing process that shows you the gift of what you do have. Yes. And it, it reveals what gifts you still do have that even if you do have chronic pain or whatever the struggle is, that even those things can't be touched. And mm. Okay, so you had a podcast a couple weeks, months ago about empty chairs and elephants was that the title of it i think it was oh empty seats and elephants yeah seats it's close it's close and it was my favorite thing you've done in a long time i just i just loved it and uh i think my favorite podcast you've done now i know <laughs> some people are going to listen to this and go luke i know you're kind of biased because you know you've already said in the podcast this one that my podcast was the inspiration for the rob cast and so they're thinking i'm kind of biased and just saying that to be nice and I'm not biased at all. I'm just completely honest, straightforward, saying it was amazing. I loved it. And let me tell you what I loved. I loved that there's a picture of you driving around in like a Ford Fiesta. Oh, which yeah, a tiny yeah. little or car. Festiva. Which, or, Festiva. Yeah, oh, yeah, because we couldn't afford. That's right. Because you had to, like, when they do the rental car, like, options. Get the cheap one. All the, I didn't have any. was losing money on this speaking tour. Mm -hmm. So I was, like, literally at the rental thing, like, whatever, whatever you got is cheap. Well, how much is cheap? Okay, great. And my friend Matthew's like six four two something, and I'm six three. And they'd be like, "Well, the cheapest car is that." And it would be like a roller skate with a mm -hmm. electric toothbrush engine. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> it's just driving around, gig to gig. And you, I just like imagine your knees were kind of like around your chest when you're driving. And you talked about how like it didn't work out, like like it didn't work out the way you want. And you're you're getting in front of these groups, and it was thousand plus people and then it was like 70 or something oh yeah yeah show. yeah this was the fall of 2011 okay i did a tour i had a book come out earlier that year called love wins 
Mm-hmm. Um, I had a tour book that fall. I go out on tour and cities where I would have done a 1400 people would have showed up mm-hmm. like 72 people show up or a city where I'd sold out whatever venue we booked a bigger venue for the next round. And I'd walk out on stage and it's like 62 people like <laughs> just so many empty seats mm-hmm. and just this awareness. Oh, I used to talk to large crowds. And these aren't large crowds. Like you, your audience, a, a good chunk of your audience apparently is left. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on the podcast, you talked about how you started to appreciate more the opportunities that you have now because I, I don't know if I'm reading into this too much, but at some point you go, well, crap, if it went from 1,000 to 70, what's going to be the next one? <laughs> like what's 70 after? I don't know the math on that. But it seemed like you, there was a sense of gratitude that was born in that struggle. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. I always have loved my work, but when I went through that, oh, your a whole sort of religious world is has rejected you. I, um, so going forward, I believe there was a whole nother world of people who are more spiritually hungry than ever. But the dominant ways they've heard about Jesus just makes them want to throw up in their mouth. Okay. Um, so I, I, and we were, I was le- that fall at the last day of that tour. The next day we moved to California and I'd left the church that I'd been pastoring. So that tour happened like that was um, old life, tour, new life. So I knew we were moving to California for a whole new life. So it was, it was a surreal transition anyway. And then you just throw in a tour. Um, I knew that we, Kristen and I were both absolutely resolute. The only thing is to go forward and to keep going to see, because we just knew there were lots of people who are more spiritually hungry than ever, but couldn't do that thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And that we just had to keep on our path and keep doing the work. And maybe we would find those people or they would find us or not. But the only thing you can do is just keep going. Um, so I was more alive than ever. I was also like, oh, having to come to terms with maybe I used to talk to big groups and maybe that was a phase of life and now it's that phase is over um, and maybe there will never be big crowds again. So I, so part of the driving around was like feeling that in the depths of my being, this is the cost of using your voice and doing what you need to do and staying true to your path is there are no guarantees that you'll always be popular or liked or whatever that is. But there might have been like one moment where you thought, maybe I should just send a blog out and say, you know, there's a few typos in that book and it came across different than I wanted. Come back to my shows. Come back to the next one. Absolutely not. I would have, uh, no, I would have, the book, there's so much I left out of the book. Um. <laughs> but I, I'm not even talking about the actual book itself, but just the thought of, Oh, I've kind of burnt this bridge. I wish I could un- like there has to be a thought where you're going, "Oh, let me tell you a story." So I moved to a, a new church not too long ago, a few months ago, and there are some changes that have happened, and um, these have happened, or you made them happen. I they have happened while I've been there. Okay, so you made some changes. I they happened while I was there. It's just a coincidence that you came and then these changes got made. Total coincidence. Wait a minute, this is not the Robcast. You don't get to interview me now. This, there were just, they happened, they were decided before I got there, and I was a 
whatever. You didn't stand in the way of these changes being made. I might have been the person up front describing the changes, why we're doing them, and preaching about it. Yeah. Hypothet- in this hypothetical. It's You're all- LeBron saying, I had nothing to do with Coach Blatt being fired. That's not true at all. I'm much shorter than LeBron. Much shorter. Oh, yeah, right. That's, that's how the <laughs> parallel breaks down. Right. Hype. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's, that's it. That's the only difference. Um, so I, anyway, this happens, and uh, Luke is um, preaching about this. and That's you. That's me, yeah. Okay. I'm trying to multitask because my headphones just fell off. And... We're just bouncing from first to third person. It was quite <laughs> enjoyable to watch. You just got into this really dark cobweb known as my brain for a second. And anyway, so afterwards, there was a person who wrote this lengthy treaty picking apart each of my sermons over the last month. Oh. Both, and I know you could never relate to that. That's probably never happened to you before. Well, did you read it? Well, I, I read maybe okay, 25, yeah. so That's where I don't relate, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they sent it to me, and I thought, oh. And I read it a little bit, and I was like, oh, this is kind of boring. I don't want to finish this. And so I just went to bed. But I read a little bit of Did it. Did you sleep that night? Mm-hmm. I, it, it wasn't anything fascinating to me. I might have even texted you, Paul, about this. I think you did. Yeah, yeah, we talked about it. Um, and I know I'm right. I mean, let's be, I'm right. Okay, whatever I'm saying is right. But there's this, like, thing in the book of Philippians where it talks about... Um, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And like that phrase or that we translate vain conceit is like someone who's really confident, but there's no like support for their confidence, right? And so I'm thinking about that and I'm going, what if I'm, no, I couldn't be wrong. Like what if I'm, what if I'm the one who's 100% confident about what I'm doing, but what if I just don't even realize that I'm wrong? Do you ever think about that? Like as, as to process that, to go, Okay, you have one person who's 100% dead set that they're pushing the right thing. I'm 100% certain that I'm pushing the right thing. Is there ever a chance that maybe I'm not the right one? Have you ever thought oh, that? Absolutely, and that's why I call it the marinade. Never go public on a new idea. You live mm-hmm. with it. You poke it. You prod it. You try it out. Um, and this is the problem. Somebody reads a book and they stumble on some new idea and they're so excited like a pastor and the next sunday they're like okay it's all about <laughs> yeah it's all about cities it's all about being urban it's all about creativity it's all about small groups it's all about prayer it's all about gifts it's all about worship it's all about there's always some new magic bullet um or the whole bible is all about the return from exile no 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 it's about atonement no mm-hmm. no it's about kingdom no 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 it's about shalom no you can just fill in the blank mm-hmm. and there'll always be a best-selling book to religious people that is the the whatever that la- whatever that word of the moment is yeah. but if we could just do that so you you live with it for a long time and you turn it around and you run it by people and see what they think i have friends who I'll run i run everything by who certain friends are especially good at pointing out uh, flaws or there's a gap there or there's that doesn't that doesn't add up or and then secondly you're probably not ever the first person to say this so when someone's like oh this is brand new no um so for example uh john philip newell was here the other day and uh he's the scottish teacher priest mystic 
minister, beautiful human being. He was talking about how second century Celtic spirituality, um, one of their primary values was care for the earth. One of the other primary values of second century Celtic spirituality was the reverence for the sacred feminine, that the, that the divine is, manif- is reflected in both masculine and feminine. Um, well, issues of female equality and issues of earth care are considered very progressive causes in our world today. Uh, but there, eight, 1,800 years ago, there were, there were communities of faith who very clearly and articulately spoke of these of utmost importance. Yeah. So uh, you're right. Sometimes people are just dead wrong, um, and they're so full of great confidence. And other times you have looked deep, like within a, obviously within the Jesus tradition, um, and like nothing in Love Wins is new. That's been said a thousand times. Um, so you have to see yourself. And then I would say that Jesus calls disciples, that you see yourself as a student. Uh, you can only witness to that which you've learned. And you hold the whole thing loosely. Um, so even like speaking of the afterlife, nobody knows what they're talking about other than the fact that everybody dies. So like even in Love Wins, over and over again, I was like, if we're talking about the afterlife, we're all speculating. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Uh, and what's so funny is you, can, no matter how much you frame it, there are still people like, but yeah, what's going to happen? Like, what do you believe? <laughs> and I was like, we're speculating. That was one of my points is to build a whole world of certainty around that, which happens when you die is foolish to say the least. Um, so yeah. that's why it's the way that you handle it. Um, and if you're wrong, you, you, you own it. Oh yeah, I was totally off on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so if you hold hold it loosely, you yeah. like you yeah you, you release control of the outcome, and you let go of that being the uh, the rubric to determine like okay, that's exactly what I should have done. So let me tell you a story. On, okay. Uh-huh. You like stories? Yes. Okay. So on Thursdays, I do this thing where I get five people from my church together, <laughs> and um, I preach my sermon to them. Yeah. Where'd you get that idea? I don't know. It just, I've been doing it for so long. I think I just made it up. So I do this. Um, and I'm last Thursday and, uh, and someone comes up to me after or not like during the group. And so I'm wrapping up and they go, well, how do you determine if a sermon was good? Is it like based on like what people come up to you and say afterwards, does that determine if a sermon was good or not? And so if you were asked that question, what would you say? Like, how do you determine if, if the sermon's good, if the book's good, if the project's what do you mean good, by good. Well, I didn't. I, I didn't ask the question. They asked the question, so you would ask. Well, sometimes if you get asked a lame question, the question has categories within it that, unless you transcend those categories, you're only going to be able to give a lame answer. So I say to a lady from my church, "That was a lame question." Uh, I think a sermon is good if it comforts the disturbed and it disturbs the comfortable. Oh, that's good. Uh, I think a sermon is good if it brings good news to whoever needs good news. I think a sermon is good if it created the kind of space where spirit could speak whatever spirit needed to say to each person. And when spirit speaks, each person swears the divine was speaking to just them. I think a sermon is good if it gives you a vision for a new kind of world, and more specifically, what your life looks like within that world. I think a sermon is good... If somewhere deep in your bones you have a sense that maybe the tomb really is empty, 
Hmm. I think uh, there, there's nine oh, answers right there. Crap, mine was awful. <laughs> I, you know what? That's I mean? just on the spot. That's six I, or seven answers you could say to that question. I hope that person doesn't hear that answer because mine was way worse than that. I said, as long as I respected the process and I was faithful in my preparation and I was fully present in the sermon, and I did my work. That's kind of a vague answer. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't come up with it. If it makes um, you feel like the tomb is empty, I didn't have that. Okay, sorry. Sorry, I didn't come up with that. My bad. I'm Whoever gave kidding. me the idea for that lunch group didn't I'm fill me kidding. in on the answer. <laughs> Actually, you, you point out something very true. Sometimes a question is hard to answer because you are ans trying to answer the question according to the categories implicit within the question. Mm -hmm. So this person says, how do, you, how do you know if a sermon is good? The implication being that good is the goal of a sermon. So see, there's a whole bunch of assumptions built into her question. So you were trying to play by the rules of her question. You just judoed her. And those rules are actually very confining because though that isn't implicit within that is you have the same goal of a sermon, which is that it would be good, mm -hmm. which is so incredibly. So that's why when you ask me how would I answer it, I just start riffing on three, four, five different ways you can answer that question is sometimes you have to step outside of the categories of the question and answer it from a completely different place. So the, the question is stuck in among the houses and you have to fly up above the trees um, and see it from a higher altitude. And then you realize, oh, well, there's lots of different things going on in the sermon. So I guess the answer then would be lots of different things. Mm. So just hypothetically, how do I do that next time? <laughs> <laughs> actually, actually, it's almost like a muscle that you train or build up when a question doesn't feel right, because the question didn't feel like in the moment is, uh, especially when you're a pastor and you want to please people, is you immediately start talking instead of following in that split second, that impulse that's like, something's not right here. I wonder what's not right here. Oh, good is not how I would evaluate. Oh. So, so part of it is just training yourself um, which is why I'll, in large, I love doing Q&A in large crowds and have for years because you never know what someone's going to ask, and it could go any direction. And, and so I've just put myself in situations where anything could, anything could happen, and I'll be put on the spot, and we'll see where it goes because it like, it's almost like you, you're building muscles. Hmm. Um, <laughs> that seems a little and bit stressful. My, Wife would say, Rob, not everybody enjoys that. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that, but I do. You do. <laughs> okay. So next time I'll just say what is good <laughs> and then I'll have a better answer. Okay. But you push for craft instead of success. Like that's part of this book is trying to get people to move past just trying to be successful, which by the way, last, we talked like a year ago and you just turned this book in. Like literally, like the oh, day before, did, did when, I really? when you mean and uh, and Beck, Richard Beck were together, you would oh, just turn this book in. And so I'm reading the book going, he really did just turn that book in because you talked about some of this stuff when we oh, talked a year ago. So whatever you're telling me now, I know will be in the next book. See what I did? Above the trees. <laughs> Above the trees. That's good. Okay. So we're thinking craft instead of success because there are a group of people who want just to have... I want you to tell me my project, my, my film, my book is good. But I think you say, let's do craft. 
appreciate what you're doing. This is a moment right here, right now. That's all that matters. Yeah, craft. Craft is when you have this awareness that you are doing a work that is needed in the world, and the work has a fundamental humbling effect because you know you can always learn something new. Craft is about the subtlety and the nuance of this work, whether it's running a business, being a mom, being an accountant, insurance agent, whatever it is you do, school teacher. There's a craft inherent in work, mm-hmm. and you're putting in the hours, and you're doing your... There's a certain nobility and pride that comes from understanding your work in the world as a craft. And some people would say the pushback is, yeah, but my job is really meaning menial and it's not I just work in an auto parts store yeah but when I go in an auto parts store and the person knows their stuff like they really know their stuff there's something really beautiful and helpful about that um, there's a there's a nobility and a dignity that comes when somebody takes their work seriously yeah. and success I use success in the sort of over the top term success is this thing well I'll tell you when I get to whatever when I sell this many when I get to this then so success essentially puts your joy in the future when we get to seven, when we launch the 15, when I make it to the whatever, when I win, whatever. And that can be goals. I talk about how goals are really powerful and motivating and plans and all that. But success is when you meet that person and they tell you about all the stuff they've accomplished. But you don't get a sense of their love and respect that they even get to do the work. Hmm. So success says, what more can I get? And craft says, can you believe I get to do this? Hmm. And you find uh, the principal of my daughter's elementary school is out on the curb every morning. When you pull up, she opens the car door and your kid gets out. And there's just that sense like she's there. I think she knows the name of every single kid in the elementary school. Like right here in the middle of L.A., this woman is she's like work. It's like she's working a craft. It's like a sculptor or a painter. She's she's running this school and she does it with such dignity and class. Um, and I think what we've had in our world is we had a bunch of people who are taught how to be successful, how to climb a ladder, how to get to the corner office, how to build up a retirement, like how to achieve. But that's different than waking up in the morning with a sense of gratitude that you get to do your craft for another day. Yeah. So as I'm hearing that, I'm thinking of your your definitions for boredom, uh, cynicism, and despair. Yeah. And so I feel like a lot of people are bored. They're like, yeah, there's nothing interesting to do here. Right, right, right. Boredom's a spiritual disease. It's uh, boredom is a spiritual disease of there's nothing interesting to make here. Cynicism is uh, there's nothing new to make. So cynicism presents itself as wisdom, but it's actually generally comes from a wound. The person tried something, they got shot at, they fell face down. Mm -hmm. And now the cynic holds everything at arm's length because if you hold it at a distance, then it can't hurt you. Uh, And so... You have cynicism, you have boredom, and then despair is, and nothing that we make even matters in the end. So it's the sort of dull thud of, oh, why waste your time? None of it matters. And despair is essentially a spiritual disease because despair says that tomorrow will simply be a repeat of today. Um, This takes us all the way back to Egypt, to making bricks day after day after day. And the moment of inbreaking and, and disruption is the thing that happens in your heart when all of a sudden the idea is birthed that maybe tomorrow won't just be a repeat hmm. of today. And then you might say, this is just where I started. 
That story in there, you tell. I think it's oh the rental. Yeah, yeah, like up in San Francisco. Yeah, this person commutes like almost four hours, just under four oh. hours every day, and you're talking to her, and it her him her her, her yeah, and she says something like, "Yeah, this is where I am, but it's just where I started," or something like that. Yeah, she's. Uh, I'm renting a car in in San Francisco in a neighborhood full of homeless and addicts. Um, very famous neighborhood. I'm renting this car and. The woman behind the desk is just on it. It's like one of those things where you just realize this person knows. What, I'm watching her deal with people ahead of me in line. And I'm like, she just knows her stuff. And so I get to the front of the line and I'm asking her, so, t- so how long have you been working here? And she, I was like, so you live in the na- you don't live in this neighborhood, do you? She lived like across the bay. And so she tells me about this 515 train and this unbelievably long, like hour and 45 minute commute, train, walk, bus. And then she repeats the thing 12 hours later. And uh, she says, this is where I start. This is such a beautiful moment. Like, this is, and craft has that. Y- you you start, you start wherever, you start at the bottom. And you work your way up. And you throw yourself into it. And then sometimes, the way that life works is it throws you back. And you got to start all over again. I've had many of those moments. Where it was like, back to the beginning. Like, okay, mm. let's make some more sermons. Let's write another book. Let's start over and try it again <laughs> what the person who has to go back to start yeah. back over because i can imagine like okay you start from the bottom and now we're on i feel like i'm just quoting drake at this point i was just gonna say yeah. drake will come up at some point yeah he will um probably will anyway um okay i get that narrative like you start from the bottom now we're here but what about like we're here back at the bottom mm-hmm. and that seems like where cynicism and despair come in and like how do you fight against oh, this is going to end the same way because we tried to get somewhere and it didn't work and now we're back at the bottom. Like that's like that seems to me when like despair just parks in your garage and says, I'm yeah. here to stay. Uh, I, there was one time, this is at least probably 10 years ago, I knew two guys who both lost their jobs at the same time. And they were both probably early 30s. The one, his wife's family her parents owned a bakery the day after he lost his job he went to work in his wife's parents bakery at 6 a.m the other one took an extended vacation sort of did this did that and i was always struck with the one who went to work in the bakery at 6 a.m the next morning i know he'll end up fine because in the moment when his sort of true colors are revealed, he's he gets up and he goes somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I I think the world, I think the universe, God, spirit, life, whatever it is, I think you're continually throwing thrown circumstances to sort of reveal what you're made of, and you either you either cave or you you return to I'm here I'm going to throw myself into this and uh, in the book I talk about how the small things are the big things so when people want to do all I want to change the world I want to make my mark I want to leave a legacy great why don't you take out the recycling you know what I mean yeah just start somewhere and then send those two emails that you need to send and then tomorrow morning wake up and whatever that next thing is the next thing yeah, and that's actually how it works. Um, 
it doesn't work by these massive leaping from the peak of one mountain to the peak of the next mountain. It, it works because you just put the next step in front of the next step. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I feel like it's easy to look at the big the big thing like, hey, I'm going to tackle this project in the summer and I'm going to spend everything and do it. Instead of saying, today I'm going to do something that moves the needle just a little bit. Yeah, and that whatever that big, it's awesome to have plans and you have some big dream you're working on. Awesome. But it will come to be because tomorrow you actually put in the hours. Mm -hmm. That's actually how the whole thing works. Especially people are starting out and they have, um, or the people I've met who are in a job and they're like, but I'm better than where I'm at and I know my destiny is beyond this and it's it's not very impressive right now. I'm like, they're never going to get beyond that unless they treat whatever this thing is they don't think is that big of a deal, unless they treat it like it's the biggest deal ever. Um, so like, let's say if you're a leader and you you have these 13 people who report to you, you're never going to have more people reporting to you unless you lead those 13 people like your life depended on it. Hmm. Can I, one of the, one of the nicest things someone ever said to me is that the church I started grew to be about like a hundred member church. And one of the members told my wife, she said, I, I think my wife overheard this or something. And they said, you know, Luke preaches here just like he would preach if this was a thousand people. And that has, that comment yes. meant more to me than anything yeah. I've heard in the last decade. Yeah. Uh, because that's not easy to do. It's easy to say, well, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm better than this, and I'm, and to, to mail it in. <laughs> it, it, it's easy to do that, but why? Do you, what helps people not mail it in? So, like the the person who shows up at the rental car place, and okay, she's gonna, she's just gonna make things happen. Like the person at the rental car place I saw today, she hooked me up and gave me a little discount, and I appreciated that. Okay, what about what can the person who's just like, hey, I'm kind of the grumpy person. I don't like this job. I feel like I'm entitled to something better. What is the mindset that gets them out of that so they can be present where they are and to really invest in it? Or what is the practice that does that? Uh, uh, to be fierce with reality. Like this is the thing that you have. So either throw yourself into it and be the best possible assistant regional manager for compost mm -hmm. relations or have the guts and the courage to walk away and go do something else. Hmm. But the problem is you're not doing either. Um, you're in this weird, you haven't thrown yourself into where you're at and you haven't left and taken a flying leap the other direction. Both are a risk. Hmm. Um, you're stuck in between. No wonder you're miserable. You haven't committed anything. And fidelity and commitment is how the whole thing works. Narrow is the way. There are a thousand different options here, but to commit, to give yourself to something, which is the only way it's ever going to be able to give back to you, is to commit. And commit will always be a dying to all the other options. Hmm. Um, and that's why narrow is the way. It will always involve a narrowing. And the narrowing is what you have to have in order to have the expansion of joy on the other side. So you have, a, like, think about the great athletes all the things they could be doing and they wake up and they train. So you, sports, and that, that's why so many people, what they learn about life often came through sports as a kid because it taught you, oh, you want all that stuff? Okay, then come to practice. Yeah. Or music or 
physics club, whatever it was, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It taught them, you want that? Then give yourself to this. It's fidelity to the one, the two, the three things. It's the narrowing that actually creates all the options. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and otherwise, your energies are diffused. So you're almost like a laser. And unless that laser beam is focused, it's never hot enough to bring any joy. Yeah. Okay, so there's this guy who was on uh, my college track team. His name is Jason Pram. He was a... The Prammer. All-state high school quarterback, 5A high school quarterback. Too short to really play D1. So he goes D2, and he runs track, and he runs the 400 hurdles, which is the worst race yeah, in all brutal, track. It's worse. Mm-hmm. And on a Friday, we're in the field house, and he comes up to me, and I'm a sophomore. I'm a walk-on. I'm not good enough to be on this track team. He wins multiple Division II national championships. He's that good. And he comes up to me and goes, hey, Luke, look around. And I looked around. The field house was kind of empty. It's Friday afternoon. He goes, today's a difference between being a national champion and just being good. I was like, okay, I'm here every Friday. I don't have the talent to be that good, but I'm still here. And he's right. Like, that's the difference. It's like the Friday. Like, you want to check out or do you want to stay? Yes. It's good. Rob, this has been fun. This has been great. You've got a tour that you're working on. You're doing. Yes. I know you're coming to my new town, Austin. I am the coming 16th to Austin. of next month, mm-hmm. March 16th. Wait, what month is this? February. Yeah. Is it February? I think, I think we're on March 1st. I think in the States we're in March. Yeah. Yeah. We're in March everywhere, but go on. <laughs> True. So you got that coming up. You're doing that tour. Saturdays, people show up for those. They should. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, it's in the round, like flat floored rooms within the in chairs in a circle, and I'm gonna take people, take these ideas in the book, and then take them farther, and we'll have this interaction, and people will ask questions, and it's, it'll be this bat. We'll all. It'll be fantastic. Should we challenge people to come up with the most outlandish question? You to don't need see- to challenge people. They're going to do that regardless? People will effortlessly, naturally do that. Just as. And it's really important to me to create space because people have all to of... Zimzum. We have all of this stuff knocking around in our heads and hearts, whether it's, what am I doing? Where am I at? Am I, should I be going? Should I be staying? What about the risk involved in this? Mm-hmm. What about... Um, my brain is all over the place, but I, would, I know that I'm missing out on something, but I don't know how to get my hands around it. Uh, it's very important to me to create space where we can explore all the things that there aren't other spaces to explore those things in. Cool. And uh, so that's why with this tour, I was like, the, the most fun would be just like spend a whole day in each city. So I'll do a uh, book signing Friday night, and then Saturday will be the How to Be Here experience. Sounds great. I'm so excited. Well, that's good. We're out of time. I did have an idea that we're not going to be able to do. But have you been watching uh, James Corden in the karaoke carpool, carpool karaoke? Oh, I saw, I did see a couple of those, yeah. Yeah, I was going to have us do that with like the NUMA videos and we'd quote them together, but um, we're just out of time, so I'm sorry. Yeah, wow, that's a bummer. (laughs) We'll do that next time. (laughs) Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.